Hello, my friends. I'm curious to know how many of you have a leadership pipeline. We know that great leaders grow companies because we talk to them here on the show every day. But what are you doing to create great leaders within yours? If you're a CTO, it is 100% your responsibility to grow and improve your people beyond just their coding abilities. We've built a tool that improves your people in their craft and in leadership. Visit leaderbits.io to learn more. Today we are talking to Darren Grant, the CTO at Animal Logic, and we discuss what it took to bring The Matrix, Happy Feet, and the Lego movie to the big screen, the difference between partners and vendors, and we even get a few unexpected tips that will make you a better problem solver. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So what's going on in your teams right now? Are you up really early? I know that they're mostly in Australia, but you're in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I get up very early because uh, I get up very early. But um, we have uh, offices in Sydney and Vancouver. And Vancouver gets online around 9.30. Uh, the offices in LA get online around 10 in the morning. And actually, it's kind of this brilliant thing of, um, you know, everybody talks about meeting culture and how uh, your day is completely overrun with meetings. And so you never have time for think time or actually doing any work. It's kind of inherently built in with me being here in Los Angeles. I have some overlap with Vancouver and I'll do a bunch of meetings with just Vancouver only in the, in the mornings, but that doesn't take up my entire morning. Right now we have a two business hour overlap with Sydney. So those uh, all of our meeting rooms are fairly empty until those two hours happen between four and 6 p.m. right now. And they get incredibly packed. Um, uh, so I have, you know, I have the mornings really available to start thinking, to take the time to think about strategy, to plan out meetings so that they're very effective because I have a very limited window to have them. Right. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the only downside is I end up working pretty late in order to do that overlap with Sydney. But it's actually really nice to be able to have that focused think time in the mornings, actually. That's what I do. I get up like 5.30, so I get that, get my exercise in, get a jog in, and then I, I work on everything for my, like all the preparing stuff yeah. between like 7.30 and when they get in at 9. And then by the time, in the moment that they get here, it's just like, I just help them the whole day. Yeah. And <laughs> You know, uh, I know a little bit about your background right now, so I know that you're not only getting up at 5.30 in the morning right now, <laughs> since you have a newborn. Uh, oh yeah 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 oh yeah yeah we, we're going on six weeks now he, he's yeah. Not, yeah it's cool. a it's a lot but he's just starting to get um his feedings like are going from three hours to like every four hours and so that's a good amazing. yeah 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 then when, when they get to every six hours then the wife starts getting some sleep and uh after about three months they're usually like they sleep through the night yeah cool well, I, yeah. I, yeah, I hope you luck with your with your second one sleeping through. First. <laughs> I will need it. It yes. changes. It's you can't you can't bank on it. You can't bank on it. No. I'm very fortunate myself, but yeah. Also, changing the diapers is different with a boy than a girl. <laughs> so you have to like protect yourself better. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 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 I have these. Uh, I don't know how effective they are. They're called PPTPs. Oh. Yeah, these little cloth like the like like little yarmulkes that you put. Right, on top. <laughs> right now I'm just doing like the quick, the quick yeah. diaper move. Oh, you just, yeah. Just ninja, ninja diaper. It. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's super cool what your company does, by the way. I, I do too. I do too. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm humbled by the, by the company that I'm keeping and being on this podcast, but, um, yeah, I think we do something very unique and different. Um, certainly something that's kept me coming back to this industry and mostly focused on the industry for like 25 years now. So the average person doesn't know Animal Logic That's really right. as a brand, but they do know some of their work. What are you, what are some of the most like known projects that you work on? Um, uh, you know, it's, so I'll, I'll start by saying I'm relatively new, so uh, I can say these things with, uh, without any pride of ownership and also without any kind of humble brag thing. But so Animal Logic uh, has been around for 28 years now. Yeah, started in 1991, um, but really kind of hit the broader scene. Uh, they did work on this movie that uh, a few people saw called The Matrix um, and uh, and did a lot of work there. 
uh, all the a lot of the work was shot locally in Australia, and so uh, they picked up much of the work as a result of that. Uh, Animal Logic started out as a purely Australian company, uh, lots of pride in that, um, kind of the shining star of the Australian visual effects animation market. Um, but yeah, we worked on uh, Matrix back in the day, and then uh, there have been some watershed moments in terms of Animal Logic's history and growth uh, as a company that are all focused around different movies and, and what we achieved there. So um, starting with Matrix, which is a big kind of splash on the scene, uh, speaking of splashes on the scene, the next thing that uh, Animal Logic is noted for is doing um, this movie called Happy Feet, which is a yeah. capture and uh, enabled uh, movie about uh, dancing penguins, which actually won an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Um, it's rare that that actually gets that that award has been given to anybody but Pixar or DreamWorks, uh, a former employer. But uh, Animal Logic did that, and that was a source of great pride for the company. Um, from there, they moved on and co-produced. The, I mean, uh, our, our CEO was a producer on, on Happy Feet, but really moved much more into co-production and, and co-development of a movie called, uh, I think we went through various different names in different uh, territories, but uh, it was either called The Legend of the Guardians or The Guardians of Gahul, which is this movie directed by Zack Snyder, who's really famous for really reinvigorating the DC uh, movie franchises at Warner Brothers, like Justice League. Uh, uh, new Batman's Batman versus Superman, all that kind of stuff, um, and uh, Watchmen and things like that. So Zack Snyder directed his first animated feature, which is about these uh, these uh, warrior owls, um, which I think was visually incredibly uh, ambitious, kind of shocking. And so I was an outsider at the time. I got sent <laughs> uh, to go watch the movie to report on it back while I was working at my former employer. And I got to say, even back then, I was like, wow, I can't believe that this came out of this uh, shop in Sydney that uh, people had only really heard of from Matrix. Um, so that definitely uh, started my intrigue with the company back then. Um, and then uh, the company was fortunate enough, we have a longstanding relationship in history with Warner Brothers. We worked on this, uh, we were able to work on uh, the Lego movie. And really, that's another kind of watershed moment in Here's an animated feature, um, should have won the Academy Award. <laughs> um, here's an animated feature that had a very different look and style and told animation in a very different way. So you can see first we had Happy Feet, which was, oh, this is a mocap animation feature that uh, uh, told, a, told a great story and actually was, was well received. We did Guardians of Gahul, which I think from a visual perspective was really stunning and amazing. Um, kind of what happens when you put high-end visual effects in an animated feature. And then we moved on to Lego Movie, which was a very different, unique style. Um, we did some things there that I think uh, were, were groundbreaking and innovative um, in terms of this look and feel to the environment. Nobody had been building uh, um, environments out of Legos for sure up until that point. Um, and then that started that franchise off. And then most recently, kind of a big watershed moment for us was, uh, was the... Uh, development and production of uh, Peter Rabbit, which came out last year. Uh, Peter Rabbit was a actual co-production by uh, Animal Logic. We sourced the script, we, we built the project, built the package, sold it, to, uh, sold it to our partners at Sony Columbia Pictures, and then, and then co-produced the entire movie with them while we did all the visual effects work for that. So that was, um, yeah, that was, that, was, that was another great moment for us. Really kind of harkens what we're trying to do as a company, which is switching more into co-production and then eventually co-financing animated films, rather than just being a uh, a vendor or a uh, somebody who's doing animation services work. Now, when you were like ten years old, did you know that you wanted to go into this uh, movie world, let alone animated movies? Um, no. So first. Uh, I grew up in Cupertino, California, which many people would not know where that is, except they wonder why the, why everybody knows what the weather is there because it's the default uh, weather on the weather app for Apple or for any Apple device because it's uh, Apple's uh, born and bred in Cupertino. Um, so I grew up around computers my entire life. Started programming when I was five, just like I think you did too, right? Like eight. Eight, okay, okay, yeah. late starter, whatever. Late starter, late bloomer, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I had the advantage of being in that environment. So always was around computers, uh, 
was really thinking that I would do something along the lines of computers, right? But what I was inspired by was I really wanted to be a combination of two things. I wanted to be a Disney animator and I wanted to be Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. Like uh, somebody, this, I don't know why I'm, I'm not a Republican, but this idea of focusing on business and, and growth and, and all that kind of stuff was really interesting to me. And so um, yeah, it turns out I couldn't draw worth a damn. So the <laughs> animator was out. Um, but I did want to find something that was this combination of technology based on my upbringing, um, art from that Disney inspiration early on, and then, uh, and then business right, from watching Family Ties. And so, uh, and so uh, not knowing that, um, not knowing how to merge all that stuff together, I just went along, went along my, my uh, career, kind of building up and going into computer science. And then I was fortunate enough as a junior, I think in college, to have a friend uh, say, hey, you kind of like computer graphics, right? I have a friend that does that stuff and he works on visual effects movies. And I'm like, I think people called it, misnamed it special effects at the time, special effects movies. I'm like, oh, industrial light magic. Cause that's the only thing anybody knew about them. No, it's this company out in Venice Beach, California called Digital Domain. Um, and this was in 1994, I think. Uh, Digital Domain was founded in 1993. So it's very early on. So, uh, and I got a tour. I got a tour of this place. And they were working on this film called Apollo 13 at the time uh, on Howard directed this amazing masterpiece. Um, and Apollo 13, uh, I got I got a tour. The guy that I was getting a tour from worked in the uh, R&D department as a software engineer. But what he did was he took us on a tour and first he showed us, we had a model shop. We used to build models. Like if you remember the lunar caps that lands in Apollo yeah. 13, it's about, it's about yay big. Right, and they actually digital main still has the model in their lobby if you're able to go visit. And uh, so they had people actually physically building models, which is like, hey, that's pretty cool for a tech company, right? Having somebody having, you know, you could go use a lathe if you wanted, uh, if you were if you're licensed or qualified uh, on your free time. But so we had we had people doing that. They had that out on a sound stage, or not a sound stage, on a stage for shooting. Couldn't uh, couldn't record sound out there. And they were shooting a motion control movements on that, basically like a computer programmed, a computer uh, programmed uh, camera that could do the same move over and over and over again, so that you could add different layers and something that was uh, created on the original Star Wars films by a gentleman named John Dykstra. Um, but so motion control is this idea of of uh, using computers in order to drive a camera, and they use those computers to drive a camera in order to film this footage of this model that they made there on set. And they're shooting it, or they made on premise, and they're shooting it on their premise too. And then magically, at the time, they were able to take that filmed footage and bring it into the computer, and then have people do a bunch of artwork on top of it, and then push it out back to film, right? And so, and I, and and at the end of the, so I saw people looking at footage that had just been shot on on their stages with models that they built, and then we finally ended up to we ended up the tour back at his desk. Uh, and this guy was a software engineer, right? He didn't know art from anything. And he was writing code to, uh, back in the day, Digital Name was doing a test for that original Godzilla movie that came out in the early 2000s, late 90s, right? Uh, somebody else got to work, but he was doing this, he's writing this code in order to do a water simulation. At the beginning of the movie, this gigantic space egg comes in and drops into the ocean. There's this gigantic ripple that happens. And he was writing code and using sinusoidal functions in order to make this computer-generated ripple. I'm like, wait a second, you're surrounded by all this cool stuff and all these artists and all this stuff that I love, and you're writing code in order to make art. That is the coolest thing ever. This is what I want to do with my life. And so that's kind of my superhero origin story. I did everything I could in order to get hired by that company, got hired by them June 3rd, 1996, straight out of school, and, uh, and the rest is history. Oh, that's amazing. That's, I, love, I love that backstory. Yeah, thank you. So, so then you, you get there, right? Did you end up writing uh, like CGI type code? Yeah, like yeah, yeah, I did. I did everything. I did, you know, I tried to, uh, you know, a, a good lesson in life is to find a hole and fill it and make yourself of use, right? <laughs> I think it's uh, my son watches Thomas the Tank Engine a lot. And that's really a key point of that is being a really useful engine. And so, uh, and so I think it's actually true. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's it's true. So I did whatever I could, whatever was filling a hole, filling a gap, right? And so that, well, 
there was stuff that I really wanted to do. Like one of the first pieces of kind of CG code I wrote uh, was, well, first I started out in the games division that they had there. Um, Digital Domain, even though they were doing, most known for all this other stuff, it's co-founded by James Cameron, director who's directed a couple of big movies here and there, like Titanic and Avatar. It was known for that side. They also have an interactive division. And I ended up initially getting hired in that division. Uh, they said, oh, well, you have a guaranteed job here. If you turn this job down, then you can you can like you know roll the dice and see if you're you'll get a job within the R and D department. But this is a job at the company. I said, great, I'll take it. And I did that for six months and I worked my butt off there. And then I got the opportunity to shut down that division. I got the opportunity to move into the division I wanted to be in in the first place. So I found a hole, filled it, allowed me to have an opportunity to move forward. Um, and then uh, yeah, I continued that model uh, when I was working in R and D. I uh, I really wanted to work on the cool graphic stuff. Um, uh, and so one of the things I got to write was a uh, temporal median filter for Titanic. Temporal meaning time, median meaning an average. And so what would happen is uh, on Titanic, they shot this footage. It was in a big dunk tank, right? It's all very dark. Like if you actually shoot underwater footage, like there's stuff silt in the, in the water so that if you go out at a distance, all of a sudden it becomes dark and murky and really noisy from from a perspective. And so one of the things you can do is you can take and clean up noise in the image by taking over time, like what does this pixel look like over time and averaging it together so you're not getting all this popping kind of noise. It's a simple thing to write, but it was cool. And it was the first thing that I ever got to write uh, to help out an artist who is trying to process the shot. If you remember, I mean, lots of people remember every aspect of that film, but there's this one scene of this woman floating and underwater with her dress flowing, everything like that. Yeah, it was dark and noisy as hell and couldn't be used the way it was. And so he used this in order to clean up the image so that it can be then be properly composited into the rest of the film. That's amazing. Yeah, it was for me at the time. And then, but at the same time, I also wrote our time card system. <laughs> the time card system, and I could do it. And I just said, hey, look, okay, I'll, I'll do this after hours and after, like, get, let me do the cool stuff I want to do at my day job, but I'll happily do this stuff on the weekends, right? Whatever it takes. And that balance of doing the cool stuff with doing some of the stuff that just needed to be done in order to move the business forward is really what kind of drove me throughout my career. I have good friends who are all about the cool stuff. Actually, uh, a person that I've worked with and, and been a close friend to my entire career just gave a TED talk this week. Yeah. Well, TED, not TEDx, like TED. TED yeah. For all the work that he's done on computer graphics over the years. Super excited, super proud of him. For what he's accomplished but that's not me i'm never i wasn't a phd in computer graphics i'm a i'm a wholesaler yeah but you're you're a really useful engine I'm a really useful engine yes yeah and and you do some really cool stuff too like you uh what you sit on a board or a panel for the award what award yeah so uh the academy awards that you see uh you see on on uh, on tv every year um if you watch it in the past, they've said at an event prior, there's two events that happen outside of the Academy Awards, which is the Governor's Ball, which is kind of the Lifetime Achievement Awards. And then there's the Scientific and Technical Academy Awards. Basically, you know, it's the, the Academy is the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. And from the early days of the Academy, they appreciated that the art and technology needed to coexist together. There was no art without technology. Technology without, without, that wasn't driven by art wasn't really what the Academy was about. So there's always this idea of merger. And, uh, and while there's no, there's best picture and there's best actor and things like that, there's no um, award for technology outside of these scientific and technical achievement awards. And so I've been uh, fortunate enough to participate in uh, doing the investigations. The other nice, the nice thing about the SciTech Awards is that uh, people apply for them. It's not like there's a limit like there's not like one best technology per year and they get up on stage and everybody else is a loser. Yeah. But the opposite. Um, we investigate, people apply, we investigate their applications. It's a pretty in-depth thing. I think uh, uh, I spend over a hundred hours a year over a course of a three-year investigation period um, focused on focused on interviewing people, writing reports, documenting like, hey, this is actually the real innovations happen here, here's the impact to the industry, and here's how this has changed motion picture making uh, from here on out. So we do those reports, and then we get to make recommendations to say, yes, we believe this should get an Academy Award or not. And I've been fortunate enough to do that for the last 14 years. 
and I do uh, I do co-chair the subsection of it that really focuses on anything software related. That's pretty neat. What was just one from like the past year? There's one that everybody, you know, this is a broad podcast. There's one that everybody will find um, uh, approachable and relatable to. Um, so back in the day, there are these two brothers, uh, Thomas Knoll and John Knoll, who maybe some of you guys, some people in your audience already know who I'm talking about. Uh, they invented this product called Photoshop. And they invented this actually for our industry. John Knoll was working in Industrial Light and Magic at the time. His brother Thomas was a PhD student writing some image editing software because he was a real, he loved cameras and loved manipulating footage, uh, 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 camera footage. And so the two of them got together, John with their artistic side, but also very creative uh, technically. And his brother, John convinced his brother, drop out of your PhD program, come here and make this software for me with me that I'll use the ILM and then we'll sell outside of that. And, uh, you know, Photoshop uh, never would have been what it is today had it not been for John working in the visual effects industry, had it not been for him convincing his brother, drop out of your PhD program, come here and make this product. And, and, and I think partially all of that happening within Silicon Valley back in the early days. That's super cool. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, I, and a lot of people didn't know that, but I mean, what it was, was John was using, a, John wanted an interactive way in order to manipulate imagery. Right? And so I think some of the first uses of Photoshop that you've ever seen in, uh, that you've seen anywhere, were actually on the abyss. So if you remember, okay. another yeah. James Cameron movie, right? There's this, there's this um, pseudopod, this water-based pseudopod. And there's this, there are these scenes where what was super cool about that uh, pseudopod was you could see all the reflections of their surrounding environment in the pseudopod. And so what he did was he took a bunch of photos and stitched them together in Photoshop to make basically a, a reflection dome to be reflected in that pseudopod of the, of the stage, right? So that was one of the first uses so of Photoshop within, within, uh, within anywhere, anywhere certainly, but really it was developed specifically for the motion picture industry and then the rest is history and it kind of got much bigger than us. <laughs> I just looked him up. He's 56. John Knoll. Yeah, and he was so he was very young at the time. I mean, his older brother was in a PhD program. So and now he does a visual effects supervisor for like every... Well, John Knoll is the chief creative officer for Lucasfilm. So anything, any like he's basically the grand poobah of all visual effects supervisors there. He's uh yeah, he's super accomplished, super dedicated to the art and the craft. He's on the board of governors of the academy. He's a, you know, he's a pretty impressive guy um, and uh, really exhibits this passion that I think it really drives people to success in any industry. Like John, you know, he, he could do anything on the weekends. He goes back and he's built like scale models of some of those models from the original Star Wars and films them and does everything with them again in his home just because that's his passion and his, his hobby is his work. His passion is all all combined, and so you know, if he wasn't doing it for money, he'd be doing it for fun. Oh, I love it. I'm taking I'm taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of uh, a lot of the people in the software world or CTOs and technology world, they have different organization structures, right? Some have tribes, some have just teams. Some people get fancy with it, some people don't. But what I'm curious is is what's the structure? for your company because you guys animate these movies and that's really interesting to me. Yeah, so we, um, you know, we, we flex a lot in terms of our, in terms of our head time. We have, typically there's this kind of this uh, separation which, which always causes some strife between production and technology. And sometimes you have people in the middle called production technology who are really trying to bridge that gap. And production is really the idea of here are people that are working specifically on a particular work product. Like, so for instance, I mentioned Peter Rabbit, where uh, we just, I think they just wrapped shooting uh, in London on Peter Rabbit 2. Peter Rabbit 2 will be coming to the theater New Year next year. And so there's a bunch of people that are dedicated to just delivering that product. It's almost like a product team, right? And then technology provides kind of a central core service in support of all of that stuff. I mean, ultimately, like there's no, we're not a technology company. Um, even though we produce great technical IP, we're a creative company. And, and our creative IP, ultimately, especially as we co-produce and co-finance these films, our creative IP should be worth more than the technology that we're developing. And we're there in service to them, right? 
Uh, where we, Animal Logic, funny enough, has released products out in the market in the past, specifically garnered towards our small market of, of uh, media entertainment. But, um, but really that's not our focus right now. Our focus is developing tool sets and workflows that make the production of our actual content, these films, um, as efficient as efficient as possible. Right, because the moment you get into monetizing internal tools or concepts of divestitures or whatever it may be, then your management layer, your focus is completely void of just being solely focused on supporting the creative. But that's exactly right. And I've, and I've uh, you know, I've been on both sides of the fence. I've worked for a number of different software companies that provide uh, services to this industry. Uh, I was a part of doing that monetization. There's this product called Nuke, which most of your most of your clients probably never heard, or most of your uh, viewers have probably never heard of. But it, really, it's a it's a tool for compositing. So you, people may have heard of After Effects or things like that, where you're taking multiple images and putting them together into a final image. Uh, Nuke is what is is the industry standard for doing that work at the high end of the film and commercial market and animation market. Um, and uh, that was developed at Digital Domain, and and I was a part. I was the software manager of that product when we took it from an internal product and then pushed it out to push it out to the market right and it did change things around a lot we did on one level it was like oh look we can finally we finally have documentation because we have to provide that for external people internal people you pick up the phone and you call up phil who's the main developer of it and he'll just tell you rather than writing it down right so there are lots of advantages to that but lots of disadvantages in terms of bifurcated focus our external clients are asking for this that really doesn't matter to us but we're taking our internal resources in order to do that lots of challenges there so i've got a i've got an interesting question for you i was asked the other day what are my thoughts on like diverse this subject of diversity and inclusion mm -hmm. because apparently this is getting popular and i've kind of seen the headlines i've seen the headlines but i haven't ever like dove into the subject uh I had a familiarity with the concept of diversity of thought because you really need that on teams period. But yeah. what are your ideas or what are your thoughts? Like, what do you know about diversity and inclusion? I know that uh, having a bunch of people that all think and act the same way, is not the way to develop something that, uh, that is useful for everybody. Right. And uh, we have, uh, we, we do focus on diversity and inclusion quite a lot of animal logic. Um, you know, I, um, we are. We actually talk about it. The executive team. We have a very small executive team of four people. Um, one is uh, one is kind of standard Anglo-Saxon. One is um, our, our CEO is uh, is Armenian. Um, I'm half Japanese, and our CEO is 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 is, uh, is a woman. And um, and I think I mean on one level, uh, just from a from a selfish perspective, uh, on one level. Um, Focusing on diversity and inclusion is fantastic because it's an untapped market of resource, right? So if all we do is hire a bunch of middle-aged white engineers, then we're leaving out a huge part of the market or young, young white, young white engineers, right? Because even there's the diversity inclusion of, of the generation that's like 40 plus, 50 plus, right? Like they're still incredibly valuable. And if, if some markets are ignoring them, I'm happy to, to get those people because they have a wealth of experience and uh, and knowledge. And the same is true of anybody that's uh, anybody in the diversity or inclusion area. They have a wealth of experience and knowledge that is different and an asset uh, outside of anything that kind of has your standard. Right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, all that that stuff is very important to me. It's very important to our organization. Um, since I've taken over CTO, we didn't have CTO before, but since I've taken over. Um, I have a team of seven of, in my technology leadership team, uh, two of which are, are women, uh, zero of which were women before I started. So I do take it very, uh, very seriously. Um, my wife, super accomplished <laughs> technologist as well. And so uh, that certainly helped to inspire me to, uh, to do this. But um, yeah. Cool. yeah. That's I mean, what I thought too. I was like, yeah. yeah, you need a bunch of great people. And to me, like we definitely need to make sure that we're not one-sided right for any yeah. like, period and then we just need a lot of good people that think differently and i mean i'm a big fan of looking at people like a computer processor like i really care about how they think and how they make decisions yeah and i i, I mean i think the main thing and where there's such a emphasis right now is um 
is it takes a while. It takes generations to build that up. Oh yeah. Right? Um, and and um, just from uh, from a workplace and culture environment, which is something we can change immediately. But then also, how do you have people that are inspiring and encouraging? Like I've had many mentors in my life, and I can look at them and, and, and actually uh, more strong female mentors than I've had male mentors, right? Um, but, yeah, me too, um, by the way. Just yeah, randomly. Yeah, and, yeah. I can, and I can look at that, but it's all about, you know, you don't get to where you are unless somebody else is, is, is looking down from where they are and helping mentor and bring somebody up, right? And choosing you. And so, um, and people want mentors that uh, honestly, a lot of times look and feel and think about, think about things the same way. Like, okay, if you're like me and you're there, this is how, then I have faith that I can get there as well. Some people don't need that. Some people are glass ceiling breakers or innovators change or change makers. Right. But a lot of people are rank and file need like inspiration from people that look and, and act and think like they do. Right. And so this becomes a multi-generational issue. And so the main thing is how do you encourage, how do you put people in those positions of authority and power? And then how do you, and then a second piece of that is you must encourage them to do much more mentorship and, and leadership development of, of the next generation in order to help make that next generation a larger percentage. Yes. I look at it like a directional pad, right? You have to have people yeah. above you, you have to have your peers, and you have to be teaching below you. Like I used to talk, programmers would say to me, they'd say, How, why am I supposed to mentor somebody? I've only been programming for two or three years. I was like, you can do hello world. There are people who can't even install the packages on their computer. Right. I was like, you know enough to start teaching entry level programming if you have two or three years experience in programming. And the benefits that you get from doing that are tremendous. Yeah, you look at things from a different perspective versus your own. Um, the long-term benefit, I mean, there's the, like, you know, when I started out, I did some public presenting and things like that. and. Uh, and I've had people that have come up to me and said, hey, I saw that presentation you did in 1999, which when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Right? And uh, I was there and I remember you from that and that and a lot of what you said inspired me to continue forward in my career and now look at them. And I mean, I have, you know, there's from that aspect of people that actually were directly worked for me. Um, you know, I, since I moved into management very early in my career and I, like I filled holes rather than focusing on a specific area, it's doubtful that I'll ever get a scientific and technical achievement award of my own. But what I great, find great value in is uh, is having mentored and having given the opportunities to people that work for me in order to do that, in order to innovate, right? So I count my awards and the thank yous that I get on stage more so than the, than the, anything that I actually physically get. I got goosebumps just now. It's it's rewarding. I know what you're talking about too. Like yeah. you have this vision, this idea, this like picture in your head of what it would be like to to get one of those awards. Then you get drawn to that, you get near it, and then you realize like you could actually contribute in a greater way. There's something better over here. And then you just fit into into that place. I mean, look, you've been doing it for 14 years now, right? Yeah. 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 And you you've been a part. It's like, would you rather get one or be a part of giving a hundred? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. Yes, I would love to get one myself, but that's just not in the cards for me. And when you figure that out, you really figure out where your place is in life and what you can actually do to bring the most to bring the most benefit to the, the world, or in this case, the industry that I'm in. Um, that's yeah, it's it's about understanding how to fill that hole. You might get one, man. I wouldn't say yeah. no. <laughs> from the from the great shaman Justin Bieber, never say never. <laughs> okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Yes, go, right? that is why we are friends, yeah. Darren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so one of the reasons why, like, first of all, for everybody that is listening, uh, I got to go out and see their offices. And it's amazing. But one of the coolest things about you, Darren, is that we have like 1,700 people on LeaderBits now. Mm. And you, as a leader with your uh, upper management team on, on LeaderBits, one of the most active, interesting groups on the entire platform. And that's, cool. that says a lot to me about you as a leader because you, you like really care. Uh, you're in there coaching them, growing them. It's just like, I mean, kudos to you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's what the platform's actually, the thing that I found is that it feels like that's what the platform's meant to encourage, right? It makes very, I mean, 
it makes it very easy for me to go in and see what their progress is, like things that we don't even talk about in our one-on-ones, just activities that they're doing. Um, uh, and see and see that and be able to get you know part of this is just encouragement right um uh, leadership and management skills uh they're all obvious they're all obvious and what you really need is just a consistent reminder of these things and just re-putting that that bit that bit of, uh, of leadership knowledge back in your head on a regular basis is what reminds you and helps you continue to drive forward to be a better leader right making it almost habit right you have that boomerang function where you can say hey Make me do this. That was really good. Make me do this again another two weeks. Another two weeks. Uh, forming habits uh, don't have to be uh, focused. <laughs> like, I'm going to sit here for eight hours and make sure that I focus on this habit and I will have it for the rest of my life. It's not how it works. You remind yourself to brush your teeth every night. And lo and behold, after time, you just do it as a, as a matter of course. And I, I'm really grateful for you getting on a call and talking with SurePrep and that was just like unbelievably fantastic. I told my investors that and they mm -hmm. were like, well, then you'll really love business because this is what it is. Like clients aren't mysterious people. They're people you have relationships with. They'll act as sounding boards for you. They'll give you raw, direct feedback and advice. And um, so I was super grateful for, uh, for that. Well, and, and that's a, that's an interesting thing, right? That's the, um, uh, the approach that I take. So I, uh, you know, we are again, we build a lot of amazing technology here, but we're not necessarily a technology company. So uh, my goal is to, with the resources that we have, make sure that we're focusing them on the things where we really want to move the needle and change the industry as a whole, or change certainly change animal logic, uh, if not the industry as a whole, right? And everywhere else, you know, there's a lot of other great technology companies that are focused on making products to do things like we're using Zoom. We've talked about Zoom and Eric a, yeah. a lot. They're going public pretty soon here, right? I saw uh, um, a couple things about that. Yeah, nine billion dollar valuation. Good on him, right? Um, uh, like we're not making a video conference. Like we depend and rely heavily. Like I'm, I'm remote. I work in LA. Most of my team is in Sydney and Vancouver. Uh, I depend on video conferencing inherently as a part of business, right? Uh, that doesn't mean that I want to build a video conferencing system or that it's the right thing for us to build just because we're dependent on it. We can find and and basically my strategy is is uh, focus and build and innovate on key areas and everywhere else buy your way into matching the state of the art right and when you're buying your way in something that you're incredibly focused on and is a deep part of your of your uh of how you work as a technology organization that's not a vendor and actually like we've talked internally um when uh visual effects companies started being called vendors instead of partners it was kind of the beginning of a of the end in terms of commoditization. Um, I don't treat key vendors as vendors. I treat them as partners. They're partners, they're people that I know, you know, I know about your background. There's people that I know, there's people that I, I'm, cause I'm inherently reliant on your business succeeding for my business to succeed, right? Uh, because uh, I do believe that LeaderBits is providing value to our leadership team that I think pays off in spades. So I'm incredibly important. It's it's incredibly important for me to you guys for you guys to be successful because that actually just benefits me. I'm ultimately I'm pretty selfish. Uh, so uh, but but so finding ways to treat your vendors as partners rather than as vendors in key areas is is just as much as it's just as important to building out your technology portfolio as doing the technology yourself. And I, I like how you say that too because one of my favorite things to say is like we need more good selfish people because mm -hmm. like in our language and our vocabulary selfish has gotten a bad rap because we somehow use that word so much for negative. But when you yeah. have a good person who's selfish, they desire to do as many things as possible to help others. Cause that's what makes them feel good. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. yeah. I like that. The vendors, vendors versus, uh, versus partners. Yeah. yeah. You can get in a lot of trouble trying to build, every single thing yourself. So I like how you brought in that concept of buy, buy your way in wherever you're not extraordinarily focused. We do. I mean, we are not a web technology company. We are not, um, uh, we, we do have our own time card system. We're not innovating <laughs> on that right that? now. Is it yours? No, 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 no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, somebody who's been here for 20, uh, 23, maybe 24 of our 28 year history, uh, built it very early on. And so it's like, okay, we can leave this until we want to look at this. But if we're not doing additional development here, 
if we were, we would really re-examine this and say, is this the right thing for us to be spending our time on? Yeah. No, I, I like it. I like it. And then I've told the story, um, one, one last little thing. So I told that story of, of when you shared with me about the behavior change or writing the shorter email uh, about 100 times now because while I get, I get emails and thank you notes and stuff from our, from our users and I get some video testimonials like when people get promoted because they do what's in it and they're just on an individual account. But when um, meeting you in, uh, in person first time and hearing that like you've actually seen changes on your team, that, is, that was like the most energizing thing in the world. Great. Great. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's super, it's super cool to be able to have this easy interface for being able to focus on like you're in, in when you're in it and you're like in your one-on-one, -on -one, like as much as you want to focus on developing that person as, as an individual, ultimately like the long laundry list of stuff that you have to talk about that's work related comes up and, and, and takes over. Right. So this provides a separate asynchronous way to be able to still focus on those things. Yeah. And, and, well, that's what we're, that's what I'm like really interested on the human side of things, right? Because I'll talk, I talk to like a lot of CTOs, right? And some of them will say, oh, uh, our leadership, we don't, we don't need to do that. We do one-on-ones. And I was like, well, I don't know how to, I'm still working on articulating it, right? The way, the way to say it and still getting, gathering data as, as my machine learning algorithm brain thing. But <laughs> But yeah, it's just like, it's different. It's like one-on-ones, you can, you can check in, see how people are doing, but it's not the same as like intentionally practicing a leadership exercise. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. And you can check in and you can try and fit some of those ideas and concepts into that. But ultimately, like everybody has a, I have seven direct reports, which is a nice number compared to like 20 or 50 that some poor people have, right? If you add that up, like, you are just doing the bare minimum in terms of like status checking, keep everything, keep the, keep the, uh, uh, keep the wheels on the track going forward and not taking this, uh, like, again, it's selfish. Again, it's the selfish time to focus on developing yourself as an individual and having your mentor or your, or your um, HR business partner or whomever participating in that with you. So if you could go back to, to the beginning of your career, Right when you're writing that mean algorithm, right? <laughs> uh, median, median, uh, temporal median filter. Yeah, the temporal median filter. You go back. It's really, it sounds really impressive. It's actually, actually just a few lines of code. No, it's super impressive. You iterate okay, pixels over time and space, and average them out. I think that's like super, super geeky and neat. But if you go back to that version of Darren, and you could give him one piece of advice to last him his entire career, what would it be? Um, God, it's really hard to narrow it down to one. Um, I think, you know, if I look, it, it's, it's kind of a, everybody has the same thing like that on your deathbed, do, do you ever look up to the, at your loved ones and say, I wish I'd worked more, right? And uh, that never happens. Um, Until I die. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe Elon Musk feels that way. It, it, like this, there's this concept of workism within American culture, um, Chinese culture as well. The nine nine six, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, and it's not necessarily about. Um, for me, I, I did work constantly and, and focus on the job, and that helped me uh, accelerate and, and grow my career. But then I've also seen other people who. Uh, our peers with me who didn't do that in their 20s, right? Like, uh, I know people that are CTOs that were in rock bands touring the country or like making uh, music videos or, or doing all traveling, right? Experiencing life. And, and the, the thing to remember that, that I would tell my old self then is, uh, is that wealth of, uh, the wealth of experience doesn't have to be focused on your particular job. Wealth of experience can come from all your experiences. You are the sum of all your experiences in life. And so making, if you, you know, um, even learning how to windsurf or something like that, like can teach you a lot about uh, self-perseverance, can make you relatable to people. Rather than, well, this person only works 24 seven, right? <laughs> like 
And I don't want to be that person. I, oh, but I enjoy windsurfing. Okay, I can relate to this person on a human level. Um, I probably should have done more of that uh, early on. Um, yeah, definitely. We run out to San Cal- Calamente right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to learn to windsurf when you're in your mid-40s, man. I'll tell you that. I believe you could do it. I believe you could you could win surf while winning your scientific award. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> no, I like that though, because I I found that all right. So uh last week I was in Colorado speaking and I saw the mountains and I hadn't been to Colorado before. And I was like, this is beautiful. And so I took a couple of days off, uh like extended my which, weekend. Which part, which part which part of Colorado? Boulder. Boulder. Okay. Yeah. I was bouncing between Boulder and Denver. So I kept seeing the mountain line. And so I said, all right, I'm going to take a Friday and Monday off. And I'm going to get an Airbnb and then just adjust my return flight because I haven't had a day off in like 16 months or something like that. Right. And so I did. And I went on mountain climb in the morning, like every morning. And I learned so much from a mountain climb. <laughs> It was like a way for my brain to like decompress and like a different avenue for it to tie things together. And I ended up like, you know, writing some interesting content and, you know, having some interesting observations. And I was like, as much as I love what I, what I do, um, and I don't feel like it's, it's work in a, in a weird way, like the diversity of experience is super important. Well, and that's the, so I guess, yeah, going back to our earlier conversation, um, as much as that's important to have those external, that external diversity influencing you in your decisions, like having it within yourself is equally as important, right? Um, I think you just made a leader bit, man. <laughs> okay. <there we> go. <laughs> I love it. Do as I say, not as I do on that one, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's uh, the first step to working on anything is to start the conversation like I started saying I get up at 5 30 in the morning for runs like the first time I ever tried (laughs) and and it took about three months before it became like a a thing that I do uh and that was about a year ago but yeah I kept saying it over and over and then what happened was is I I was just like I felt this need to be accountable to myself I'm like I I can't go around and say that public speaking if I'm not actually doing it you know, and so then I became that person. So it's all, it's always about like finding little tricks, little edges, little ways to get uh, an up and then consistency over intensity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Making habits, uh, making positive habits is, uh, is a good lesson for life, not just in work. Yeah. Darren, this is fantastic, man. We made a podcast. Cool. All right. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. There is one thing, like I was going through some of the list of uh, example questions from Chloe, and one thing that I thought would be uh, might be valuable mm-hmm. if you if you have a if, it, if you have another yeah, yeah. Um, So it was about uh, advice on technology leadership, and one that I was thinking about. Um, kind of, there are two things that are two quotes. One of which I, I don't know the attribution. One of which is attributed to Albert Einstein. Um, so you know, there's some there's somebody to learn from. Um, Albert Einstein once said. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used to create when we created them, right? And then the thing that I've been focused on quite a lot recently is this idea, um, if you are not the problem, then there is no solution, which sounds very um, kind of uh, ridiculous and harsh. But if you think about it, really, and you take a step back, that quote is really saying, look, the only thing, the only um, way that we can solve problems the only way that we can solve problems is, or affect solutions to problems is things that we can change ourselves, right? And so oftentimes, whether it's, it, so saying we're the problem isn't necessarily saying I'm, I'm the problem child, although a lot of time I am, uh, ask my team. It's, uh, it's much more about uh, if I'm focused on how to solve this, the only thing that I can really change or adjust or affect is, um, are things that I can do, right? So whether it's myself or whether it's saying, Changing my approach, changing what I'm, uh, what I'm, the uh, context that I'm giving the team, or anything like that. It's really if you're not the problem, then there is no solution. And so changing that mindset to saying I've got to change things. It's not like this person's not doing what I want. Got to fix them. Like no, no, you got to fix yourself. Yeah, and then it gives you control. Like the moment, like as long as the problem is not you, then it's outside of your control. 
Right, right. Yeah, and if you could take ownership of it, now you can start to strategize about how you have control and you can adjust the variables in your environment in order to achieve a different outcome. But no yeah. one... And if, yeah. and if you look at it and there's nothing that you can do in order to affect the solution, then that's not a problem that you can solve. And you should, you know. But if there is something, do it. And that's the hard part. Both of those things are the yeah. hard part. <laughs> the hard yeah, part is yeah. first realizing, like coming to the dis conclusion that you can't change it. Uh, yeah. And the second part is in redirecting your attention to figure out what you can then do. Right, exactly. Right, it's the, it's the serenity prayer. Right? Right? It, it's like, I, I, I love it because the first time I heard the sentence, I was like, this is just good information. Like, exactly. <laughs> this is just good yeah. knowledge to pass around. Yeah, exactly right. But um, it is good knowledge. And so I thought that was something I haven't watched every podcast, but I wasn't sure if that was covered. But it was uh, no, was there anything else in, in, the, in the notes from Chloe that you wanted to, uh, to, sh to share experience anything like anything you think would be good leader bits or advice for the audience or anyone? Um, I guess, um, no, that one. Actually, I was just looking at one and like, what are some of the struggles you face as a CTO and the lessons you learned from them? And I realized if I just applied what I just said, I wouldn't have had the problem. <laughs> I was like, why didn't I do this podcast earlier, 10 years ago? Um, well, yeah, okay, one thing, um, and this kind of ties in, this is a good one because it ties into what we do as a business as well. Um, it's, it's, uh, another thing that I believe is undervalued uh, or in terms of technology leadership, one thing that's incredibly undervalued is storytelling. And maybe I'm influenced and impacted by that because our very business is about storytelling, right? Whether it started out as storytelling just in making amazing visuals when we were working on visual effects movies to help a creator tell their story, or now moving into actually developing the content for animated and hybrid films ourselves in order to tell better stories overall. And the idea uh, of storytelling actually bleeds through to everything. Um, I'll start out with just pure communication. Uh, I went to an extremely technical, a small engineering school um, in Southern California called Harvey Mudd. There were 680 undergraduates when I was there. And it's part of the Claremont Colleges. There's five different colleges there. Uh, if, if you're a fan of Revenge of the Nerds, if they felt much, felt like the different fraternities, like we were the Lambda Lambda Lambdas, there was the Alpha Betas, which is the Claremont McKenna College uh, right next door, which is all business economics uh, majors rather than engineering. And I had our, an economics professor in my freshman year scared the crap out of me with this uh, scared street speech about saying, look, you're all smart. You're all smarter than those people at that college next door, but you're all going to be working for them while they're out golfing in the middle of the week and earning twice as much as you because none of you know how to talk. None of you know how to present. None of you know how to communicate. And communication is the most important thing in leadership and growth. And I, I really do think it is. And I've heard some other people on your podcast talk about that, but it's not just about communication. It's about really taking a step back and understanding how to tell the story of what you're, of what you're doing, right? And why you're doing it and how that impacts the people, why the people that are listening should care. And I do feel like oftentimes and people it's like, oh, well, we handle this within one-on-ones and stuff like that. That's really only half of the communication. Um, balance right the other piece a large piece of communication is is broad public communications right not just telling an individual not just telling the team but telling everybody in the company telling the world this is what matters to us this is why we're doing this this is how it impacts or benefits you get on board with us try and try and get everybody to be on that same page and uh you know maybe it's influenced by the fact that i work with storytellers all the time like we actually have artists that are making stories and all that stuff every day here but it's um, I can't under can't state how undervalued that can be in an organization of clearly communicating the message and whatever you need to do in order to make sure that people can hear that message um, and they understand that message and then embrace that message. That's what storytelling is really about. I love that. That's like by far my most favorite leader bit now because we don't. It's like how do I not have one on storytelling? Now I do. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean it's it's really interesting. There's a uh, there's a guy that used to work in uh, layout, which is basically early uh, 
when you're making an animated film, like it's almost like a, like block like blocking, if you know anything. Yeah. Blocking, like I'm sitting here and then and Shrek comes up and says, donkey, blah, 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 blah. It's very, very basic. It's just to get the framework of the story. And he, he was working there and it's an amazing guy, really smart. Like, you know, he was a, um, he's a Whitney biannual artist, right? Done all these great things, but like was kind of stuck in this small hole, this small position there. He had big ideas and the ability to act on them. Right now, I can look up his title. He is the founder of the Sequoia Design Lab. So Sequoia Like Sequoia? Capital, oh, wow. Sequoia Capital works for them, built a design lab where really uh, one, of his, one of the primary goals is when they bring somebody into Sequoia Capital, he's helping them tell their story, not just to pitch to investors, but to pitch to the world, right? And he comes from our industry. That's brilliant. What's his name? His name is James Buckhouse. Brilliant on Sequoia's part for having yeah. resources for their founders. <laughs> yeah, he's super cool. Oh my God, look at my LinkedIn. In my LinkedIn, my friend, my friend's on stage. There's a picture of him on stage at the TED Talk. Oh yeah? Right now. Yeah, super cool. There, check it out. That's pretty cool, right? Whoa, that's like the, that's like the TED event. That's like yeah, the main TED. TED event. TED, TED. And that's Doug Robel, who's, uh, you know, just not only is he an innovator, but he's a brilliant dude and, and one of the nicest, uh, most human people that you'll ever meet. And what's crazy here, uh, I can tell what's going on just because I know his work. See how he's got like a helmet on there? Yeah. It's a head-mounted camera, and he's speaking into a microphone, and then he's in a mocap suit. This is a completely digital version of him being done in real time. You can see it's the exact same pose, right? Whoa. So he, that is digital Doug when he's presenting uh, as actual Doug, all done in real time. So you can think about what kind of impact that could have on virtual reality of the future, on, on, uh, on celebrity, right? Like, hey, I can act and I'm still in my, you know, I'm still in my pajamas. Or I can, you know, uh, this stuff has come up with Instagram influencers like uh, Shudu and Lil McKella and all this kind of stuff. But here you can do this all in real time so that there could be that deeper connection between that CG version of somebody and, and, uh, and the audience. Yeah. So like around Christmas time, when things were slow in business world, I was thinking about, I was watching the uh, rendering, how they're doing that now. And, uh, I started thinking about the authentic authenticity issues. And so I started researching, you know, who's the service, what's the method of authentication? Like, how could I verify that it's me digitally when those things become a thing? And I, there's actually like grants out for it. Like the government has some grants out for developing technologies and they're trying. Grants. I have a good friend that works at Facebook research who goes and speaks on the specific, specific topic. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a big deal. Uh, yeah. Because what this is showing is you can start to make things more cost affordable. Like you can look at it today and go, well, in order to re in order to reproduce something that um, is convincing to not just the casual user flipping through a Facebook video feed or something like that, but it's convincing on a, you know, full HD scale, still expensive still very expensive and so um but that cost com like it's a you know an order of magnitude less than it was like 10 years ago and uh, like a digital domain and other places we've been approached by various people in the defense industry asking about how much like year to year how much would it cost you to do this so that they're monitoring like wait when the cost becomes really actually uh reasonable and this starts to become more and more this could become more and more popular that's when we have to trigger this and watch out and have this uh, ability to actually verify a broadcast. Yeah, that's an interesting technology. I was thinking about what technologies would be like super, super in high demand and figuring out how to authenticate those streams is you, I mean, it's a real tough challenge if you think about it. Yeah, it's super tough. And especially like, so there's Doug in real time and happens to have an advantage of because he's Doug reproducing Doug. Yeah. But if he was Doug reproducing somebody else in real time, like, how do you, uh, yeah, how do you tell? How do you tell? Where's the authentication? And like, how does how does the viewer tell? Like when I'm watching a video, like, you know, it, Amazon's got the x-ray. version of me. This is actually a digital version of me. <laughs> Am I talking to your assistant right now? I'm, oh, sitting in a, I'm sitting in a VR. I got a head jack in just like in Matrix. It's crazy. Oh, but it, isn't, it, isn't it weird how like we are headed in that direction? Yeah. <laughs> On a macro, like, yeah, it's pretty interesting. 
well that yeah that, that google example of um lingo or duolingo whatever that when you had you saw that like this google assistant was basically scheduling a scheduling a haircut oh, yeah example. yeah yeah voice is a lot easier to do audio is a lot easier to do than video it's far less dimensions to deal with far less data to deal with um uh and uh that's the first step but video comes shortly after yeah Darren, this is fantastic, man. I, I'm so pumped. And thank you so much. You brought me a ton of value personally. Uh, with cool. Bits and yeah, no, this is, I mean, leader bits has been great. I, I'm actually, the only thing I'm annoyed at is I got a challenge yesterday when I was, I was at Legoland with my son. And so I was like, oh, I got a new leader bits challenge, but I can't watch it. So I'll, I'll do it today. <laughs> no, no worries. Thank you so much, Darren. You have yeah, a fantastic cool. day. All right. You too. I'll see Bye -bye. you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then CC me, joel at moderncto.io. If you CC me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer. We're trying to get listed on the top 100 for iTunes and I need your help in order to do this.